welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 45 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm great. You know, Mary, one of the things I love about being an aviation podcaster is we have the opportunity to learn new perspectives through conversations with our guests. And this episode is going to be one where I know I'm going to learn a lot about a topic where I'm really lacking in knowledge and understanding. So I can't wait. Yeah, me too. I'm in the same boat as you, Max. I'm excited about this for sure. Um, but before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabins ebook app for sponsoring this week's podcast. When you're enjoying an in-flight meal or movie high above the earth, have you ever wondered about the level of thinking that's gone into your immediate living space? The contoured seat back and supporting headrest, the safety provisions, the mood lighting, the meticulous selection of sound absorbent material calibrated to block intrusive noise frequencies. Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists designers, engineers, maintenance and marketing specialists have transformed the stark tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings, each with their own defined look, ambiance and personality. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit JetlinerCabins.com to learn more and to download the app. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, focused on technology and transportation. Mika Pikala is Vice President of the National Federation of the Blind of Massachusetts and Vice President of the Association of Blind Citizens. He has attended the USDOT Air Carrier Access Act Working Group Forums on behalf of these organizations since about the year 2000. Welcome to the show, Mika. Good morning. Great to be with you. Mika, I'm so excited to be talking with you. So let's jump right in and take a look at some of the PaxX news stories making headlines. First, a blind woman says she was recently booted off an American Airlines flight after she requested a slightly roomier seat in order to accommodate her service dog. Mika, I I understand that you fly, oh, 50 to 75 segments per year. Are these types of situations common and do you think PaxX has gotten better or worse for blind passengers through the years? I mean, I think the extreme incidence of somebody being kicked off a flight, much like in the general public, is thankfully somewhat rare, but it does happen. But you do hear a lot of stories still, even in 2017, of people with blindness and other disabilities just talking about the hassle of air travel or how the system really hasn't yet fully caught up to speed with kind of the best ways to handle blindness and disability. There was actually a case a couple of years ago with a a U.S. Air Express flight out of Philadelphia where a gentleman with a, a service dog was thrown off of a flight and actually all the other passengers got off the flight sort of in support of the gentleman, and they ended up canceling the flight. So that that also was kind of a high-profile case. And in this most recent case um, of Sue Martin, uh, she was actually attending the CSUN Accessibility Conference. I think the incident happened at DCA on an American mainline flight, so it wasn't commuter. I mean, sometimes with commuter flights or, you know, regional operations – you may have personnel that don't have quite the 
training or the experience um, as someone, you know, working with a mainline carrier. But as far as I know, this incident happened at, at American at DCA, you know, on a mainline flight. And actually, Sue was interviewed in detail on the Blindside podcast, which Jonathan Mosen publishes. And I can send you a link to that. But they probably have a good half hour to hour interview with Sue Martin. Um, and she describes the incident, you know, in some great detail. Uh, Mika, you know, obviously we are seeing more in the way of emotional support animals on board. Um, we are obviously seeing, of course, service animals on board. Do you believe that there should be a certain sort of preference for people with disabilities? Uh, who, who gets preference when you have an animal on board because we're seeing more and more? I mean, our expertise and, and focus is really on blindness. So that would mm -hmm. involve, you know, seeing eye dogs and, and guide dogs. So, you know, we don't really have expertise in emotional support animals or really, you know, we support obviously the full inclusion of all people with disabilities, but our primary, you know, expertise and knowledge is in guide dogs and seeing eye dogs. And um, to that extent, as well, what we sometimes see is, um, and this is kind of a broader concept beyond just service animals of kind of either the airlines as a whole or staff in a micro sense, kind of imagining like a one size fits all. So I think in the, the Sue Martin case, they may have assigned her to a bulkhead seat, even though she had pre-reserved another type of seat. So it's kind of, you know, the best practice is really to ask the customer, you know, what they want and what would work best for them rather than assuming a one-size-fits-all, which might be, you know, you might assume that everybody with a disability would prefer a bulkhead seat or everybody with a disability would like to pre-board, you know, which isn't necessarily the case. So better communication, essentially. Exactly. Better, you know, communication with the person, you know, kind of realizing everybody, you know, is going to have different needs and wants. I was thinking over the last couple of days, um, something I observed a long time ago at Washington Dulles before it was at United before their merger with Continental, they would make an announcement and instead of saying, you know, people with disabilities can pre-board, they would say something like, if you have a disability, you know, you can board at any time, you know, whenever you'd be most comfortable. And I thought that was a good way of doing things and a good example of how things should be done. And it, it happened quite a bit at Dulles. I don't know if it was just Dulles that kind of tried. I mean, it was definitely more than once. So I'm curious kind of how that came to be. But it, it was really kind of amplified the spirit of, you know, how things should be done. <laughs> Mika, when I think of seeing eye dogs, uh, these are not the smallest animals, at least that's what I think of. And so what is the accommodation in an airline? The dog has to, to be at your feet? Is that kind of what has to happen? Yeah, so the dogs range in size quite a bit. You can have, you know, really small dogs as well as larger ones. And, and the basic requirement is that um, they can come into the cabin with the passenger, but that they can't obstruct the aisle. So, um, I mean, I suppose the, the ideal scenario would be, you know, an empty middle seat. But if that's not possible, you know, because of the load factors these days, then, you know, the dog would typically go underneath the seat, you know, in, in front of the, the guide dog handler or in an adjacent 
space. But in particular with the bulkhead, sometimes there's less room than other seats. So a number of people kind of prefer a seat other than the bulkhead, while there might be some people, you know, with some specific aircraft types that do prefer the bulkhead. I wonder if the problem's getting a little bit uh, even trickier as airlines are tightening up the, the seat pitch, the, the living space that passengers have in economy class specifically. Um, do you think that's something that needs to be considered going forward, Mika? It could be. I mean, just, you know, narrowing of the seat pitch, you know, it, I mean, I think it should be done in conjunction with kind of evaluating it in terms of, you know, to what extent would different types of service animals, you know, fit in this configuration or does the aircraft have, you know, some type of even more space or economy plus type premium economy seating that might have, you know, a little bit more room. But it's definitely, you know, if you make a a 30-inch, you know, seat pitch or 29, you know, you've got to test out these different scenarios of, okay, you know, how would a service animal, you know, fit in this space? Alas, they're not even doing uh, real-world uh, evacuation testing of humans exactly. <laughs> for these high-density configurations. Um, you know, it would be really profoundly interesting to see the FAA push forward uh, with some real-world testing um, of evacuations involving humans and, of course, service animals to boot, mm. if anyone at the FAA is listening. <laughs> uh, Mika, let me let me ask a difficult question, and this might get me in trouble with some people, but uh, take the case of uh, people who are exceedingly large, right? And I know some people who just would not ever fit in an economy class seat, so they always have to uh, purchase a business class uh, ticket uh, or better. Uh, how... Do we address that issue with regard to, you know, blind people? Do people come and say, well, if there's not enough room for you and the dog, go buy a higher class seat? How do you respond to that? No, I've never really heard um, the suggestion that sort of blind users of, of service animals, you know, would not be able to purchase any type of economy ticket that anybody else, you know, would purchase and um you know, in fact, the Air Carrier Access Act and Part 382 has a lengthy section that kind of stipulates the accommodation of service animals and, and beyond just, you know, the legality of it. it it's kind of a, a principle in any kind of place of public accommodation, you know, whether it be an airplane or a restaurant or any place or an Uber even, you know, that people using service animals need to be accommodated. So I haven't really heard that proposal, but I, I can almost guarantee you that it wouldn't go over well with service animal users if you said, hey, you know, you have to buy a ticket that's, you know, five or ten times more expensive. Of course, of course. And just to be clear, I'm not recommending that at all, just, you know, raising the question. No, it's an interesting, interesting question. <laughs> Obviously, those seats have more room, and there's been some compression of in some markets of the difference between an economy and a, a first-class fare, um, you know, especially, let's say, with the transcon markets and bringing those fares down to around $500 with JetBlue's expansion. Um, but it definitely wouldn't fly if you tried to tell service animal users that they had to buy more expensive tickets. Of course. All right. Well, let's push ahead and talk about the Guardian 
report. Uh, They have a report on how disabled passengers still face discrimination by airlines. And The Guardian highlights several instances where passengers' mobility devices were damaged and their owners had to fight to be compensated. Now, anti-discrimination laws in the U.S. are different from those observed by European airlines. Because should the European Commission follow the United States lead, do you think, and ensure airlines pay the full cost when mobility equipment is damaged on domestic flights? I would say if that equipment is damaged, they should pay the full cost, you know, to replace it. Um, again, that's not my core area of expertise involving mobility disabilities, but just, you know, on, on first cuff, it, I know that a person's wheelchair is kind of core and fundamental to their everyday living, all aspects, you know, of everyday living. So if it if it was damaged um, on a flight, then I think it, it should be paid for. And, and the carriers, you know, just like in the U.S., in other locations should, you know, ensure that these things don't happen. But if they do, they should make it right. You know, uh, we recently uh, covered a piece about uh, uh, British women who are calling for airports and airlines to establish an expert advisory groups in a bid to change the way that airline passengers with disabilities are treated in the United Kingdom. Um, And this Guardian report also cites a number of incidences in the UK. It seems like this is a real uh, point of concern uh, for travelers. And I have to say, I'm a little bit surprised. I should think that it would be a given that if uh, your mobility equipment is damaged, that that would be covered. Max, I mean, you've flown for many, many years. We see obviously a, a lot of people who need mobility equipment who obviously the, if you fly Southwest Airlines, there's, uh, there's a lot of wheelchairs also, of course, waiting for passengers that are coming off of that aircraft. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I wonder uh, why uh, this equipment, why these wheelchairs and other uh, similar devices were, were damaged. Is it because the baggage handlers are just not sure how to treat this kind of thing or do they need to be packaged in a way that you know would reduce the likelihood of damage i don't know that i'm curious about that clearly we have you know issues with luggage in general being stored i don't know if mobility devices fall under the same guidelines the same rules the same training as the rest of the luggage that's going into the bottom of the plane. I would also agree um, with the notion here in the U.S. of these panels that would be formed to kind of improve the passenger experience, both in terms of airports and airlines for people who are blind, both in terms of training staff on the best approaches to interacting with people who are blind, as well as airports and kind of the design of new terminals and making sure that the facilities are accessible for example, information about independent wayfinding. I know, for example, the San Francisco airport did a a pilot study using eye beacons to allow uh, persons who are blind to more readily independently find, you know, gates or restaurants or other amenities. But then I've heard recently that they've kind of shut down, hopefully temporarily, you know, shut down the test. But that's anything from the, the design of new products and airports to just more types of forms with airport and airline staff. You know, we don't really see that a lot. I mean, maybe to some extent, I know 
JetBlue does a lot with autism, but we haven't really seen a lot of engagement with the air carriers around blindness. And, and just a one little example of something that I hear happening is that um, carrier personnel or their contractors kind of think that a blind person needs a wheelchair, whereas in most cases they don't. And kind of that basic understanding and again of getting away from the one size fits all model. And I mm -hmm. think if blind people and people with other disabilities were regularly, you know, in the airports participating in carrier training and that type of thing, um, that would go a long way. One of our conventions several years ago in Dallas, actually Southwest Airlines sponsored the convention. They were one of, you know, several sponsors, but um, they sent a number of representatives during the week to the, it was at the Hilton Anatole Hotel, kind of to meet with us and we got, you know, feedback from them and they got feedback from us. But I think, you know, that needs to be done on a much larger scale and across the industry and not just once a year and not just kind of in reaction to either an incident or a regulation, but just it needs to be kind of part of the embedded operations within airports and airlines. Are there any uh, airports or airlines that you would flag up as being sensitive to these issues in a way that perhaps others are not? I mean, they all have kind of their ups and downs. Um, I'd say perhaps we've worked the most with Southwest and JetBlue, mm -hmm. um, and they've made some inroads, for instance, in trying to ensure that their Wi-Fi portals are accessible. But I mean, all of them really have kind of their ups and downs. The experience can really vary across airline to airline, airport to airport, and staff person to staff person, which I know the Air Carrier Access Act was trying to make it more consistent. But, you know, I think if you talk to a dozen people that took a flight, you'd, you'd hear a lot of inconsistencies and some troubles that people had. In my own case, I fly a lot of the same routes a lot, so I, a lot of the people know me. So I feel like I don't have as many issues as if I flew like all different routes more frequently. Well, that's an interesting point because I was going to say that in these situations, awareness, I think, plays a big role in in your case by uh, traveling either the same uh, routes, meeting the same people, they are aware, but promoting that kind of awareness more broadly within the, uh, within the airline industry, uh, it can only bring good results, I would think. And I think also, you know, it needs to go beyond just we're doing this for compliance or because we have to. Right. I mean, you're, you're not going to do a good job if you just think you're doing something, you know, just because you have to do it. I mean, it's more making it a part of the culture within these companies and at these airports. And as you say, uh, going beyond just mainline and to the regionals, um, of course, you know, we saw recently with this uh, United Airlines passenger incident where the passenger was dragged off the aircraft. That was, of course, a United Express uh, flight. And uh, in, initially, in the response to when, you know, this video emerged, um, it, there was a lot of folks in industry saying, oh, well, that was United Express. It wasn't United Mainline. But that really shouldn't matter. You know, the treatment needs to be consistent even with your, uh, your regional partners. Exactly. And also, I think one issue that we find is that 
if a lot of services are contracted out and not provided directly by the carrier, a lot of times the quality of the service is lacking if it's contracted out instead of a, a full-time, you know, career carrier employee, you know, that's been there for a long time and is there for a long time to stay. All right. We have uh, one more item on the agenda here. And since we're lucky enough to have Mika on the show, uh, we want to get his thoughts on the U.S. Department of Transportation's plan to issue an NPRM, that's a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, uh, this summer to improve accessibility of aircraft lavatories and in-flight entertainment. Now, this NPRM will propose a variety of measures that were agreed to by an advisory committee that was composed of airlines, persons with disabilities, flight attendants, aircraft manufacturers, and motion picture studios, as well as other PAXX stakeholders. Mika, this sounds like a good step in the right direction. Are you liking what you've been hearing from the DOT? Yes, um, in particular with the um, focus on in-flight entertainment systems, uh, my colleague Parnell Diggs from the National Federation of the Blind served on that panel. And I think the main takeaway in terms of um, in-flight entertainment systems, people talk a lot in general and in the documentation about the NPRM about uh, closed captioning and video description, but even more fundamental than that is the menus of the system. So being able to say, do I want to watch CNN or Fox or NBC and being able to select the channel that you want through an accessible interface. And in the world outside aviation, um, that's been done by Comcast. They have a fully accessible um, set-top cable box where you can use the guide, the DVR, you know, you can hear auditorily what's playing on a station. And that was championed by Tom Witkowski, who's their vice president of accessibility, um, who I actually knew when he worked at the National Center for Accessible Media in Boston. But really being able to access those menus is paramount. Even if you look at something like Virgin America's Red Life system, where you would use those menus even to do something like order food or chat with other passengers. Hmm. Mika, through the, through the years, we've heard a, a lot of complaints from uh, deaf and hard of hearing passengers and blind passengers about the in-flight entertainment situation. And, and there's a feeling right now that, you know, it's 2017 it's kind of jarring that we don't have more captioned content in flight and uh, more in the way of kind of uh, oral assist. Is it frustrating for you? Uh, do you hear the same complaints uh, that it just seems kind of untenable given how technology has advanced? Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental issue is that when these systems were conceived, developed, implemented, and updated, the needs of people who are blind or deaf kind of weren't taken into account. And if there's one possible silver lining, it's kind of the, the move towards, you know, using your own device. So, for instance, I can use something like an iPhone with the built-in voiceover screen reader, which is built into all iPhones if you turn it on, and then access the carrier's Wi-Fi portal and TV listings, you know, as long as that 
web page is accessible and has been designed with accessibility and some of the accessibility standards in mind, then, um, you know, to some extent with bring your own device, people are able to access some of this content. And that could certainly act as a bridge before we get to a point where the embedded systems are accessible. Yeah, it's interesting. Would you accept, uh, and this is being proposed uh, in this uh, DOT NPRN that I guess is going to drop, uh, I think, in July, if the seatback entertainment screen, uh, you know, is not accessible, they would provide a, an iPad or another tablet that would be as a, as a replacement. We've actually heard folks that say, well, that's not acceptable to me. I want the same experience. Do you think that that's a good way of meeting halfway? I mean, it, it sounds like a good stopgap measure. Okay. I, mean, I would want to know if, if the entire experience were available on the iPad or, or sometimes what happens is, you know, the iPad may only have 25%, 50% or 70 of the content or the services that are available through the, you know, the embedded portal. And another related thing that some of your readers or listeners may notice out there is kind of these kiosks like iPads out in airports where you can order food and those have not been enabled, although they could, you know, with the accessibility features that people would need, you know, in order for people who are blind to access them. Ah, so that's a real opportunity for the likes of like the OTG managements that are are doing all of these uh, uh, iPad-based ordering systems at airports around the country then is what you're saying. Exactly. And yeah. the iPad has the built-in voiceover technology that yeah. they could enable with a toggle, basically. A little bit frustrating that we're not using the technology at our hands, actually. <laughs> Um, Max, there's a lot of horror stories also, of course, with the bathroom situation on board aircraft um, and through the years, having read people you know, crawling to the bathroom, uh, trying to access the bathroom, especially, of course, single-aisle aircraft being a, a big issue. This NPRM, it, you know, it it's still going to take some time. They're looking at years out before some of this stuff is resolved. What are your thoughts on sure. that? Well, the NPRM process is is kind of interesting for people who may not be familiar with it. Uh, when the NPRM is published, uh, what you generally have is typically 60 days for public comment. Now, different agencies and different situations can uh, lengthen or shorten that, but usually it's 60 days for public comment. And you have the ability to submit your comments, your thoughts, and that's the whole purpose of the NPRM. So when this is published, uh, I think it's important on uh, the part of those who have some interest or some experience or who are stakeholders in uh, in this process to uh, take the time to uh, look at what the proposals are and to provide your, your feedback through that. Uh, generally, you uh, find the NPRMs at the regulations.gov website. They'll show up there after they're published in the Federal Register. Uh, but again, uh, this is sort of the opportunity of the public to contribute thoughts and ideas to these kinds of uh, rulemaking activities. Mika, will you be uh, weighing in at all? Yes, um, myself individually and through these organizations will definitely weigh in, you know, especially with regard to the IFE part of the NPRM. 
Interesting. The Airline Passenger Experience Association is the uh, organization that represents the uh, in-flight entertainment connectivity stakeholders and, and other PAXEC stakeholders at this juncture. They've been uh, working alongside the DOT and regulators on this issue. And, you know, this is all part of a qu- kind of negotiated um, negotiated proposal where, from my understanding, they're suggesting that a certain, obvious, as you said before, percentage of content be captioned. Would the deaf and hard of hearing community accept a 50% sort of negotiated agreement or should they expect more? Um, I'm really not sure because we we haven't really focused on the, the captioning part of it being mainly blindness sure. being our area of expertise. So I, but I'm sure like the National Association of the Deaf or other stakeholders could provide a comment, you know, on to what extent they would accept a a partial, you know, phased in approach to the captioning. What will your expectation be for blind passengers? As I said, the main issue that I see, and it's, I don't, it's gotten a little bit of attention, but probably not enough is the being able to navigate the menus to even tell the system what you want to watch or listen to and to interact with other parts of the system, such as ordering food or other innovative offerings that they might offer through these platforms, um, as well as the expansion of the video description, which is roughly analogous to closed captioning for people who are blind. It it provides um, verbal descriptions to items that are happening visually in a movie or TV show. Yeah, so that's the key the visual descriptions and the menus yeah because if you can't if you can't access the menu you're done i mean you can't how can you get to a specific movie if you can't access the menu of the system and it's not a comfortable situation to have to then ask for assistance from the flight attendant or fellow passengers obviously exactly and we found that even with the when in-flight Wi-Fi um, in the U.S. sort of came to be, it started out using an inaccessible visual CAPTCHA, which is where you get those scrambled letters where you have to enter the let you know to log oh. in. And um, we worked with GoGo, and and they actually um, they now have a a text-based CAPTCHA. So it'll ask you something like, "What is nine minus seven? And you you know, you type in your answer and it lets you in. And and some airlines like JetBlue have just completely eliminated the CAPTCHA altogether. But I understand on some international flights that there's still a visual-only CAPTCHA and that that's problematic, obviously, because it can't be independently used. And even if you manage to get assistance once, what if your device drops off and you have to log back in? Or if you switch from your cell phone to your computer and back and forth... So, um, you know, ensuring that these portals, these web portals and mobile apps are accessible is extremely important. A real, uh, a real message to stakeholders in the industry at this juncture. <laughs> An important message. Well, unfortunately, we're rapidly coming to a close. We'd like to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at, at @RunwayGirl, And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We'd love to have you. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, the Jetliner Cabins ebook app. And I'd like to thank Mika for being our guest. Mika, where can listeners find you at? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pykala, P-Y-Y-H-K-A-L-A, or you can email me at Pykala at gmail.com. All right, very good. It's been a pleasure, Mika, and uh, we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.